Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Charles Seaman. Thanks for being on the show, Charles. Thank you very much for having me, Whitney. No, I'm honored to have you on the show. Charles has some great experience and in, in a recent deal that we want to dive into and, and learn more about that I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from as well. But a little about Charles, his 14 years of commercial real estate experience in New York City has been focusing on syndication deals since mid 2017, it recently acquired a 92-unit deal in Georgia and has underwritten approximately 200 deals during this time, actively looking for new multifamily deals throughout the Southeast, primarily in Charlotte and Atlanta. So, you know, I like how you, you talked about, you know, during that time, you underwrote approximately 200 deals. Yes. You know, defining that one. And so anyway, I feel like a lot of people are, you know, it's like, well, let's look at five deals. One of them has to work, you know? <laughs> so, so I appreciate that even being in your bio. But Charles, thank you again for your time today. And tell the listeners a little more about who you are and maybe your current focus. And, and let's dive into this 92 unit property. Sure, absolutely. So as Whitney alluded to, I have 14 years of experience working for a commercial investor in New York City. And while I was with him, I got to work very closely with him and do a lot of different functions from finding deals, helping him acquire them, doing due diligence, obtaining financing, and leasing and managing them. So in that sense, I was blessed because I really had a head start because even though I wasn't doing my own deals, I got a a great learning curve ahead of time. (laughs) And then as Whitney said, I, I started having a desire to syndicate my own deals about two years ago. And I started building broker relationships and underwriting deals. And eventually that led to the 92 unit deal that we're going to be talking about today that I just recently closed on this past Thursday. So my partners and I had looked at many deals, most of which have come through brokers that we have relationships with. And there was a lot of underwriting and a lot of deals that didn't lead to anything. So unfortunately, that's just the course of doing business. They say you have to kind of you know, you have to pay your dues, I guess, before you get one. <laughs> That's for sure. That's yeah. for sure. You got to, got to be patient, right? Yes, a hundred percent. You know what? A lot of times it's normal that you do have to look at a hundred deals before you really find one that makes sense. But with the, with the competitive nature of where we are now in the market cycle, it's, it's 150 to 200 with a lot of groups. Yes. I, yes. I can definitely attest to that. I, I've been in that, that range now. <laughs> I'm hearing that a lot more common now. You know, like, you know, it used to be 100 deals. Like everybody said, well, you got to look at 100 deals or underwrite 100 deals before you find the one. And now uh, more people are saying 200. And I yeah. believe that. I believe that. So let's get started on this 92 unit property, Charles, and give us some background on what were you doing to find deals and you know, maybe before you even found this one, and then we'll talk about how it came about and how you found it. So almost all of our deals come through broker relationships. Uh, if we were doing smaller properties, you could probably go direct to seller in certain cases. But when you're looking at 100 unit apartment buildings, they're almost always going to be listed with a broker. So you want to have strong broker relations. And most of our deals you know, did come through there. We had looked at a lot of different deals, but the 92 unit actually came to us by, by way of the person that sponsored it. So we had a good relationship with the, the gentleman that sponsored it. And it was somebody that we had looked at previous deals with and some that we submitted offers on, but didn't pan out for one reason or another. And he's based in the Atlanta market. So he has a lot of good connections there. And somebody had presented this deal to him. But it wasn't the right fit for him personally because he does three and 400 unit deals. So somebody just starting out probably saying, 
who wouldn't want a 92 unit deal, but when you're doing three and 400 unit deals, 92 units, like a, a baby deal. <laughs> so he thought of us cause he had worked with us a couple of times and he said, you know, I know you're actively looking for something. Do you guys want it? So we took a look at it. The numbers made sense. And then we went forward from there. Nice. So it goes back to that relationship piece, right? I mean, th- this is such a relationship business and, and you had already built that you know, somewhat of a track record, a reputation with that other sponsor and, you know, for him to contact you all, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. We've been working with him for about a year already. And we had a couple of deals we looked at and just kept the relationship going, even when we didn't have an active deal for him. And that's what made him think of us. Nice. Yeah. You never know, do you? You never know who, you know, where or how these things come together as far as the, the relationships and the value that you're adding to other people and how it comes back around. But, um, he connected you to this deal and, you know, maybe you could elaborate on a little bit, you know, the underwriting process and due diligence process as well. Sure. So there's a few different things that we do. So with our underwriting, our first one is we have an underwriting template that we use that just kind of shows us where the property's at now and where it'll be when we, we acquire it. And then after that, if it has any potential initially, we draw it out further, usually over a five-year schedule so we can see what the projections will look like. And most times our goal is that we, we want to see something that's really going to be delivering at least a 10% cash on cash return by the time that we have our value ads implemented. So that may not be an acquisition for somebody just starting out who's not, not aware of it. Your value ads are going to be all the things you're going to do to increase the value of the property. And most deals, unless it's a, a major reposition with a lot of upgrade work, we try to implement our value ads in year one. So by the end of year one, we want our cash and cash return for the investors to be at 10%. And the annualized rate of return we look for is at least 16% because we find that that's what helps attract investors. So if it doesn't meet those numbers, you're going to move on to the next deal? Exactly. All right. So you underwrote this deal. It did come out to to meeting those numbers, I assume. Uh, but tell me, you know, what was the, what type of property, what type of neighborhood, what, what was the business plan here? So this is a 92 unit multifamily property. It's a C property in a C area. It's in the Stone Mountain market, which is right outside of Atlanta, about 25 to 30 minutes out of the inner loop. And the Atlanta MSA has become so strong that all of the submarkets have really benefited greatly, Stone Mountain being no exception. <laughs> so the benefit to it is that we have a really strong, diverse economy with a lot of jobs. The property in the area a blue collar, but one of the benefits to it is that really twofold. So the property itself is a cardinal property, and that just refers to the type of construction They're single-story, prefabricated buildings that were built in the 70s, 80s, and 90s by a company called Cardinal. And the benefit to them is that you get a lot of single working people and a lot of elderly retired people. So there usually aren't too many kids or teens. So overall, noise is minimal on the property, but people like them. And there's less turnover than regular properties because they have single stories, so nobody's above them. They have a little patio area in the backyard, and they have a parking spot right in front of their door. So it's almost like having your own house with just having uh, some neighbors next to you. <laughs> nice. So, so that, that was really our plan was to cater to workforce housing. And the benefit is that some of the other properties within the adjacent block or two have seen major upgrades in the recent year or two. And what's happened is the C-class people that were there for all these years have become priced out. So we acquired a property that was at nearly 98% occupancy. And it was also a strong wait list because now there's more and more people that were displaced by these renovations that want to stay in the same area. So they're 
looking to get into properties like ours. Okay. So pretty much, I mean, you knew who you were, who your tenants were going to be, right? You know who they, who you were going to be catering to, right? Like, so, yes. I mean, the workforce housing and, and you're in an area where you can see it changing and you can see the change happening, right? 100%. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And so, you know, what about what types of, you know, doing value add? Are you changing the property much? Can you elaborate on some of that? So a lot of the deals we look at are valued. This particular one is actually only valued through operational efficiency. So we do have $100,000 budgeted for CapEx for unit upgrades, but we're only doing very light upgrades and only upon turns. So we might replace the, the lighting fixture package that's there now with the brush nickel package. Uh, in certain units, we may do flooring, cabinets, and countertops, but only as needed. So overall, it's really through management efficiencies. The biggest value is in year one, we're just recapturing the loss to lease. So the landlord has recently, the previous landlord recently raised the market rents earlier this year, but only about 20 to 30% of the units are actually at market rent. So the big value that we have in year one is recapturing that loss to lease for the rest of the units as leases renew. And even in year two, we're only using very conservative rent increases. So that way we're budgeting to be very conservative. The other value that we have is that we're able to build back more of the water and sewer bill than the previous owner did. And also we have a washer dryer rental program. Being it's a C-class property, all of the units have washer dryer hookups, but a lot of these people probably won't be able to afford to buy their own washers and dryers. So what's going to happen is the ones who want those, those appliances but don't have money to buy them will have the option to rent them from us. So depending on the size of the unit, we'll rent them for either an additional $29 or $39 a month, and that's additional income that we can bank on each month. Nice. So, yeah, that's a great little value there that that I think a lot of people don't think of is having rental appliances, you know, especially in that case. Most people are going to come up with a few extra dollars to be able to have those units in their house or in their home, right, in their unit, as opposed to having to go to the laundromat if they can. Yeah. Much more convenient. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. so you know, you're you're capturing the value add through property management. So, tell me a little bit about how they were being managed before. Maybe, go, you know, why was the seller selling and how were they managing? So, the seller is a, a reputable seller in the Atlanta market. He had only owned the property since 2017. And he was selling because basically he, he, he had hit his price target and he wanted to get out. Similar to what we're looking to do. <laughs> he had actually managed the property fairly well when he took it over in 2017 there was a lot of deferred maintenance. There was a lot of issues. So for the most part, he cleaned up the bulk of the deferred maintenance. He did about $450,000 of work during his ownership. And we have a little bit left to do, most of which is exterior work, but overall it's in pretty decent condition. So his whole objective, why he owned it, was to clean up deferred maintenance and also get the the market rents up to where they need to be. So the market rents are still laying some of the comps, but they're a lot further along than when he acquired it. And our goal is to have them be much further along by the time we sell it to somebody else also. Okay. All right, Charles. So what's your hold period and, and how, you know, tell us a little bit about the structure of the deal. Sure. So the hold period is going to be two to five years. Our goal is that as soon as we hit our year five NOI number, that we sell the deal. So if that's in year two or year three, if we happen to hit it ahead of schedule, then we get a broker on board and we sell it as soon as we can. Because the goal is that we don't want to be greedy. I mean, while it's nice to be in to make extra money, our goal is just to hit the target and get out so that way we're not overstaying our welcome. And we're able to return money to the investors and make them happy. In terms of the the actual plan for the the actual structure, it was a 506B as in boy. So that was open to accredited and sophisticated investors. And 
what we did is on this particular deal, we only had a, a $25,000 minimum, but we also know it was a smaller equity raise between the, the down payment and the, the CapEx budget. We were at an equity raise of two million two twenty five, so we were okay with that. On a larger raise, you might want to do you know a higher amount. Because <laughs> uh, one thing I definitely realize is as you do this, there are many people who go for just the minimum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I wanted to ask you though too, like through this process of you know getting to the closing table, could you tell us a couple of problems or issues that arose, you know, and through that going through that process? Yeah, a hundred percent. So the the biggest issue that we had. And, and that I had personally was raising capital. My partners that I work with regularly and myself, we have a, a pretty good network. But what we realized is it's not the, the right type of network for this business. The network that we have, we've all been involved in real estate for a long time. We know a lot of people that are involved in real estate. But most of our connections, even though they have money and they invest, they're out there actively doing their own deals. So they're not people that are generally going to be passive investors in somebody else's deal. And logically, it makes a lot of sense in retrospect, if only I was so smart to have realized that beforehand. <laughs> so we were fortunate that our sponsor, being he's raised capital many times on his own deals, was able to help us out and he was able to get some capital in there, which definitely helped a lot. But the biggest lesson we learned coming out of it is that we need to develop a new type of network with people that are looking to passively invest in our future deals. Yeah, that's great advice right there. And so I see it very I mean, it happens very commonly. Unfortunately, it happens often where people are, they feel like they can raise a lot of capital, but when it comes down to it, they it's kind of a harsh reality if you have a deal that's that you're hoping to close soon, right? But it went back to your network, though. You did have somebody that could help you and that helped made it happen. And so, yeah. uh, you know, congratulations on getting it to the closing table. And, you know, tell me about, about what you plan to do going forward, how to, you know, develop this new type of network. There's a few different things. The The biggest thing is really building my brand and same for my partners. We're going to be building our brand collectively and our individual brands. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to be having more of a social media presence. One of my partners and myself, we each run different meetup groups in the Charlotte area. So those are things that we're going to be more actively promoting and more actively uh, displaying our expertise so that way people feel more confident investing with us in the future. And we're also going to be actively marketing for new investors. We realize that in our estimation, the the most likely passive investors are high-income earning professionals. So they're, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're accountants, they're software engineers. So we're going to focus on these professionals that may make six-figure incomes and have some money stashed away, but they don't have the time, the desire, or the expertise to go out there and invest it themselves. So they want to just give their money to somebody else in exchange for a passive return. So those will be the people that we focus on going forward. We're going to very actively market for them. And as we market for them, then we'll speak to them on individual basis and start building relationships with them. Okay. So so this, I want to go back to the 92 unit. And so give me some, I guess, details on how you are going to manage better. What are things that are going to happen or, or anything that we haven't discussed already? I know we talked about the renting the washer and dryers and, and doing some minor upgrades inside, but anything else as far as the management side that maybe the last group didn't have that you all see are, is going to add value? You know, I can't really say it's much that they didn't have. They seemed to do a good job from you know, from where they where the property was when they first acquired it. But the thing is, there was still money left on the table. So the biggest thing we're going to do is just make sure that we're charging the right rent rates. And if we see that the, the adjacent comps in the area are going to be charging you know, 50 or or $100 more for market rents than we are, then we want to be at that same rent too. Some of the other comps actually are in Stone Mountain. Some of them are in worse parts of Stone Mountain than our property. So if they're charging more than we are, 
that's mistake number one. We need to be at the same level they are. <laughs> so, so just so, keeping pulse on the market and, and, and doing that, aside from building back more of the water and sewer, and then also the washer dryer program. Okay. So, you know, you're talking to brokers now pretty often, right? We talked about how important that relationship is and how most deals are going to come through brokers. But, uh, you know, when they ask about your deal criteria, what's your answer? So my deal criteria is usually the B or C properties. For a while, we we had downsized to 20 to 100 units. But generally speaking, I only want like less than 50 if they're somewhere close to where I live in the Charlotte area. Because I realized that unfortunately, you may need to be a little more involved with data team management than you want to be. But I'd like to be playing back in the 100 to 300 unit field as soon as possible. My goal is to do a couple of around 100 units, build a track record, and then use that to segue into larger deals. So B and C properties, ideally value-add. I'd like to see it hit at least a 10% cash on cash return after the value-ads are implemented, but obviously the broker's pro forma looks a little bit different than mine. <laughs> so you know, but generally speaking, that's my, my high level pitch to brokers on that. Okay. And what's been the hardest part of the syndication process for you? So the hardest part of the syndication process was definitely raising capital because we realized once we got down to that, we had the wrong type of network for people that were going to actively actually want to invest in these deals passively. And what we're going to do is have a plan to actually market to investors going forward. So the same way we're spending time out there looking for deals we realize we need to be spending equally as much time looking for investors. So, you know, we always hear about this potential downturn that's coming, right? Mm -hmm. And so, Charles, you know, how are you preparing for that? So, in particular, with the 92-unit deal, we projected by, we prepared for by being very conservative with our projections. So, our year one value is really recapturing loss to lease, which is money that's pretty much on the table already. And year two, we only showed a 4% increase. Year three and four, 3%. And year five, 2%. For anybody that's familiar with the Atlanta MSA, they would know that last year they experienced rent growth of 5.3% year over year, so that's pretty conservative. Generally speaking, most of our underwriting on different deals will have conservative increases because we want to be realistic that you may not see the same increases we're experiencing now if we do have a downturn. And what I'll also do is on certain deals, I'll wind up using 25 or 30% as a down payment amount as opposed to 20%. So that way, there's a little more equity built in right up front. Nice. Okay. So tell me a way that you have, you know, something that we haven't talked about, but a way that you've recently improved your business that we could all apply to ours. So a way that we've recently improved it is just by starting to the brand ourselves more. And that's something people can do right away, whether you have a deal or not. So you should always be building your own reputation, building your own brand and letting people know who you are, because that's what's going to make them want to invest with you. And it's also going to make brokers want to send you deals because they'll feel more confident that you can actually close on them. Mm. So somebody just starting out, if they're listening to this, I would say maybe start getting involved with your local meetup groups. Find out how you can put yourself in a leadership position. And even though you may not be an expert yet, work at it until you become an expert and then eventually you can maybe start your own group and start building your brand more online with expertise that you have. And so, you know, Charles, now that you have, you know, you've closed this 92 unit, you've been in the commercial space for a good while, but now you're, you're you know, you've syndicated a deal. So now that, uh, you know, I, I like to ask every guest that's that's operating a deal, like how you care for investors, How you know, give me one way that's like above and beyond or how you're going to stand out to your investors. I don't know if it's above and beyond necessarily. I'd say it may be commonplace, but the problem is that it's probably not as common as it should be. It's just keeping in touch with them on a regular basis. And, you know, if they're invested in a deal with you, they should definitely be hearing from you at the very least monthly, if not more than that. And if they're not invested with you yet, you want to be calling them every two, three, four weeks at the very least, the same way that you would a broker. 
So you want to be staying in touch with them, sending a text message here and there just to say hello and to, to reach out and to build rapport with them, giving a phone call, maybe old-fashioned things like sending a birthday card, uh, things like that. You know, they make people feel special and they may, they may think of you when they, when they go to make an investment decision next time. Yeah, those are great tips. And I find things like birthday cards and things like that people don't hardly do anymore. But it can be a great a great touch, right? I mean, just to say you you remembered or you cared enough to do that. Yeah, 100%. It's like, you know, 25 years ago, it's like people are so excited here and you've got mail on AOL. And now it's the opposite. Way. It's like, oh, I received a piece of regular mail. I'm actually excited now. <laughs> so, you know, Charles, I like to have, ask every guest who, uh, before we close, you know, how you like to give back. There's a few different ways, but right now, the way that I'm most actively doing it is by people in my own network, people through meetup groups and through Facebook groups that I've met that are actually starting out in the syndication business. I like to give them guidance. I don't charge for mentoring or anything like that, and I most likely never would because it's just not who I am, but I do like helping people and giving information because I, I always look at it that it comes back to you in other ways anyway. So right now, I actually have three people that I'm working with who I've met with various Facebook groups and they were starting out in the syndication process. So I figured if I can give them some guidance and help them along their way, that would be uh, my way of giving back. In the big picture, one thing that's always interested me and that I've always wanted to do is there's a lot of things that our education system lacks, but to me, one of the biggest is financial education. And I think we're producing a society of people that have good academic skills, but very little else. And they're not prepared to succeed in the real world. Accordingly, we have 70% of Americans that will never retire. And we have a lot of people that are going to struggle financially throughout the course of their lives because they don't have access to good information. They're being programmed with bad programming by the school system. And what I'd like to do is eventually start a nonprofit where I can spread financial education to more people on a widespread level. But that's, uh, that's more futuristic. I'm not there just yet. Awesome. Well, that's that's a big need, that's for sure. Uh, no doubt about it. We're not trained in school to understand how to balance a checkbook, much less right. how to inv- how to invest. Yeah. And so it's awesome that that you're wanting to do that, Charles. But uh, most importantly, right now, tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about your business. Sure, 100%. So right now, we don't have a website yet. We're in the process of getting one of those, but uh, give you a couple different methods. First is by email. This C is in Charles Seaman, S-E-A-M-A-N 316 at gmail.com. And you can also find me on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn. You can find me either by my name, Charles Seaman, or C-S-E-A-M-A-N 316. And you could also reach me by phone, 347-306-3278. All right. Thanks a lot, Charles. Whitney, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I would love it if you would go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. I want to hear your feedback. It makes a big difference in getting the podcast out there. You can also go to the Real Estate Syndication Show on Facebook so you can connect with me and we can also receive feedback and your questions there that you want me to answer on the show. Subscribe too so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, I want to keep you updated. So head over to lifebridgecapital.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with me, sign up on the contact us page so you can talk to me directly. Have a blessed day and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.